0: Section 1, comprising Introductions, Chapter 1 and Chapter 2, of 60 Years in Southern California, 1853 to 1913, by Harris Newmark. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by P.J. Lando sixty years in southern california eighteen fifty three to nineteen thirteen containing the reminiscences of harris newmark published in nineteen sixteen by knickerbocker press a quote from macaulay every generation enjoys the use of a vast hoard bequeathed to it by antiquity and transmits that hoard augmented by fresh acquisitions to future ages in these pursuits therefore the first speculators lie under great disadvantages and even when they fail are entitled to praise dedicated to the memory of my wife a memoriam by harris newmark's sons at the hour of high twelve on april the fourth nineteen sixteen the sun shone into a room where lay the temporal abode for eighty-one years and more of the spirit of harris newmark on his face still lingered that look of peace which betokens a life worthily used and gently relinquished. Many were the duties allotted him in his pilgrimage. Splendidly did he accomplish them. Providence permitted him the completion of his final task, a labor of love, but denied him the privilege of seeing it given to the community of his adoption. To him and to her by whose side he sleeps, may it be both monument and epitaph. Thy will be done. Signed, M.H.N., and MRN. Introduction Several times during his latter years, my friend Charles Dwight Willard urged me to write out my recollections of the five or six decades I had already passed in Los Angeles, expressing his regret that many pioneers had carried from this world so much that might have been of interest to both the Angelino of the present and the future historian of Southern California. But as I had always led an active life of business or travel, and had neither fitted myself for any sort of literary undertaking nor attempted one, I gave scant attention to the proposal. Mr. Willard's persistency, however, together with the prospect of cooperation offered me by my sons, finally overcame my reluctance, and I determined to commence the work. Accordingly, in June 1913 at my Santa Monica home, i began to devote a few hours each day to a more or less fragmentary enumeration of the incidents of my boyhood of my voyage over the great wastes of sea and land between my ancestral and adopted homes of the pueblo and its surroundings that i found on this western shore of its people and their customs and finally of the men and women who from then until now have contributed to the greatness of the southland and of the things they have done or said to entitle their names to be recorded. This task I finished in the early fall. During its progress I entered more and more into the distant past until memory conjured before me many long-forgotten faces and happenings. In the end I found that I had jotted down a mass of notes much greater than I had expected. Thereupon the editors began their duties which were to arrange the materials at hand to supply names and dates that had escaped me, and to interview many who had been principals in events, and accordingly were presumed to know the details, and much progress was made to the enlarging and enrichment of the book. But it was not long before they found that the work involved an amount of investigation which their limited time would not permit, and that if carried out on even the modest plan originally contemplated, some additional assistance would be required. Fortunately, just then they met Perry Worden, a postgraduate of Columbia and a doctor of philosophy of the University of Halle, Germany, a scholar and an author of attainments. His aid as investigator and advisor has been indispensable to the completion of the work in its present form. Dr. Worden spent many months searching the newspapers, magazines, and books, some of whose titles find mention in the text, which deal with Southern California and its past. And he also interviewed many pioneers to each of whom i owe acknowledgement for ready and friendly cooperation in short no pains was spared to confirm and amplify all the facts and narratives whether to arrange the matter chronologically or not was a problem impossible of solution to the complete satisfaction of the editors this as well as other methods having its advantages and disadvantages after mature consideration the chronological plan was adopted and the events of each year have been recorded more or less in the order of their happening whatever confusion if any may arise through this treatment of local history as a chronicle for ready reference will be easily overcome it is believed through the dating of the chapters and the provision of a comprehensive index while the brief chapter heading generally a reference to some marked occurrence in that period will further assist the reader to get his bearings Preference has been given to the first 30 years of my residence in Los Angeles, both on account of my affectionate remembrance of that time and because of the peculiarity of memory in advanced life, which enables us to recall remote events when recent ones are forgotten. And inasmuch as so little has been handed down from the days of the adobe, this partiality will probably find favor. In collecting this mass of data, many discrepancies were met with calling for the acceptance or rejection of much long current here as fact, and in all such cases I selected the version most closely corresponding with my own recollection, or that seemed to me in the light of other facts to be correct. For this reason, no less than because in my narrative of hitherto unrecorded events and personalities, it would be miraculous if errors have not found their way into the story, I shall be grateful if those who discover inaccuracies will report them to me. In these sixty years, also, I have met many men and women worthy of recollection, and it is certain that there are some whose names I have not mentioned. If so, I wish to disclaim any intentional neglect. Indeed, precisely as I have introduced the names of a number for whom I have had no personal liking, but whose services to the community I remember with respect, so there are doubtless others whose activities past or present it would afford me keen pleasure to note but whom unhappily i have overlooked with this brief introduction i give the manuscript to the printer not with the ambitious hope of enriching literature in any respect but not without confidence that i have provided some new material for the local historian perhaps of the future and that there may be a goodly number of people sufficiently interested to read and enjoy the story, yet indulgent enough to overlook the many faults in its narration. Signed, H. N. Los Angeles, December 31, 1915. Forward by Historian Charles F. Lummis The historian no longer writes history by warming over the pancakes of his predecessors. He must surely know what they have done and how. And whereby they succeeded and wherein they failed. But his own labor is to find the sidelights they did not have. Macaulay saves him from doing again all the research that Macaulay had to do. But if he could find a twin Boswell or a second Pepys, he would rather have either than a dozen new Macaulays. Since history is becoming really a science and is no more a closet exploration of half digested armchair books, we are beginning to learn the overwhelming value of the contemporary witness even a justice's court will not admit hearsay evidence and science has been shamed into adopting the same sane rule nowadays it demands the eyewitness we look less for the authorities now and more for the documents there are too many histories already such as they are self-satisfied and oracular but not one conclusive Every history is put out of date almost daily by the discovery of some scrap of paper or clay tablet from under the ashes of Babylon. Mere humans no longer read history except in school where they have to or in study clubs where it is also required. But a plain personal narrative is interesting now as it has been for 5,000 years. The world's greatest book is of course compulsory. But what is the interesting part of it? Why the stories of Adam and Eve? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Saul and David, and Samson and Delilah, Solomon, Job, and Jesus the Christ. And if anyone thinks Moses worked in a little too much of the family tree, he doesn't know what biblical archaeology is doing. For it is thanks to these same petty details that modern science, in its excavations and decipherings, has verified the Bible and resolved many of its riddles. Greece had one Herodotus america had four antedating the year sixteen hundred all these truly great historians built from all the sources they could find but none of them quite give us the homely vital picture of life and feeling that one untaught and untamed soldier bernal diaz wrote for us three hundred years ago when he was past ninety and toothless and angry because the historians didn't get it straight the student of spanish america has often to wish that there had been a Bernal Díaz for every decade and every province from 1492 to 1800. His unstudied gossip about the conquest of Mexico is less balanced and less authoritative, but far more illuminative than the classics of his leader, Cortés, a university man as well as a great conqueror. For more than a quarter of a century, it was one of my duties to study and review, for the nation and other critical journals, all sorts of local chronicles all over Spanish and English America, particularly of frontier times. In this work I have read searchingly many hundreds of volumes, and have been brought into close contact with our greatest students and editors of history material, and with their standards. I have read no other such book with so unflagging interest and content as these memoirs of Harris Newmark, My personal acquaintance with Southern California for more than thirty years may color my interest in names and incidents, but I am appraising this book, whose proofs I have been permitted to read thoroughly, from the standpoint of the student of history anywhere. Parkman and Fisk and Coos and Hodge and Thwaites would join me in the wish that every American community might have so competent a memorandum of its life and customs and growth for its most formative half-century. This is not a history. It is two other much more necessary things, for there is no such thing as a real history of Los Angeles and cannot be for years. These are the frank, naive, conversational memoirs of a man who for more than sixty years could say of Southern California almost as truly as Aeneas of his own time, all of which I saw, much of which I was. The keen observation, the dry humor, the fireside intimacy of the talk the equity and accuracy of memory and judgment all these make it a book which will be much more valued by future generations of readers and students we are rather too near to it now but it is more than the confessions of one ripe and noble experience it is beyond any reasonable comparison the most characteristic and accurate composite picture we have ever had of an old brave human free and distinctive life that has changed incredibly to the veneers of modern society. It is the very mirror of who and what the people were that laid the real foundations for a community which is now the wonder of the historian. The very details which are not big enough for the casual reader, mentally overtuned to newspaper headlines and moving pictures, are the vital and enduring merits of this unpretentious volume no one else has ever set down so many of the very things that the final historian of los angeles will search for a hundred years after all our oratories and literary efforts have been well forgotten it is a chronicle indispensable for every public library every reference library the shelf of every individual concerned with the story of california it is the peeps diary of los angeles and its tributary domain signed charles f lummis chapter one childhood and youth eighteen thirty four to eighteen fifty three i was born in lobau west prussia on the fifth of july eighteen thirty four the son of philip and esther Ney meyer neumark and i have reason to believe that i was not a very welcome guest my parents who were poor already had five children and the prospects of properly supporting the sixth child were not bright. As I had put in an appearance, however, there was no alternative. I was admitted with good grace into the family circle, and, being the baby, soon became the pet. My father was born in the ancient town of Neumark, and in his youth he was apprenticed to a dealer in boots and shoes in a Russian village through which Napoleon Bonaparte marched on his way to Moscow the conqueror sent to the shop for a pair of fur boots and i have often heard my father tell with modest satisfaction how shortly before he visited the great fair at nijni novgorod he was selected to deliver them how more than one ambitious and inquisitive friend tried to purchase the privilege of approaching the great man and what were his impressions of the warrior when ushered into the august presence he found bonaparte in one of his characteristic postures standing erect in a meditative mood, braced against the wall, with one hand to his forehead and the other behind his back, apparently absorbed in deep and anxious thought. When I was but three weeks old, my father's business affairs called him away from home, and compelled the sacrifice of a more or less continued absence of eight and one-half years. During this period my mother's health was very poor. Unfortunately, also, my father was too liberal and extravagantly inclined for his narrow circumstances, and not being equipped to meet the conditions of the district in which we lived and our economic necessities, we were continually, so to speak, in financial hot water. While he was absent, my father traveled in Sweden and Denmark, remitting regularly to his family as much as his means would permit, yet earning for them but a precarious living in eighteen forty two he again joined his family in lobau making visits to sweden and denmark during the summer seasons from eighteen forty three until the middle fifties and spending the long winters at home lobau was then as now of little commercial importance and until eighteen forty nine when i was fifteen years of age and had my first introduction to the world my life was very commonplace and marked by little worthy of special record unless it was the commotion centering on the cobble-paved marketplace as a result of the revolution of 1848 with the winter of 1837 had come a change in my father's plans and enterprises undergoing unusually severe weather in scandinavia he listened to the lure of the new world and embarked for new york arriving there in the very hot summer of 1838 the contrast in climatic conditions proved most disastrous for although life in the new republic seemed both pleasing and acceptable to one of his temperament and liberal views illness finally compelled him to bid america adieu my father was engaged in the making of ink and blacking neither of which commodities was at that time in such universal demand as it is now and my brother joseph philip later known as j p newmark having some time before left sweden where he had been assisting him for england it was agreed in eighteen forty nine after a family council that i was old enough to accompany my father on his business trips gradually becoming acquainted with his affairs and thus prepare to succeed him accordingly in april of that year i left the family hearth endeared to me unpretentious though it was and wandered with my father out into the world open confession it is said is good for the soul hence i must admit that the prospect of making such a trip attracted me notwithstanding the tender associations of home and the sorrow of parting from my mother was rather evenly balanced in my youthful mind by the pleasurable anticipation of visiting new and strange lands any attempt to compare methods of travel in eighteen forty nine even in the countries i then traversed with those now in vogue would be somewhat ridiculous country roads were generally poor in fact very bad and the vehicles were worse so that the entire first day's run brought us only to Lesson, a small village about twelve miles from home here we spent the night because of the lack of better accommodations in blankets on the floor of the wayside inn and this experience was such a disappointment failing to realize as it did my youthful anticipations that i was desperately homesick and ready at the first opportunity to return to my sorrowing mother the fates however were against any such change in our plans and the next morning we proceeded on our way arriving that evening at the much larger town of bromberg here for the first time the roads and other conditions were better and my spirits revived next day we left for stettin where we took passage to istat a small seaport in southern sweden now our real troubles began part of the trip was arduous and the low state of our finances permitted us nothing better than exposed deck quarters this was particularly trying since the sea was rough the weather tempestuous and i both seasick and longing for home moreover on arriving at istad after a voyage of twelve hours or more the health officer came on board our boat and notified us that as cholera was epidemic in prussia we were prohibited from landing this filled me with mortal fear lest we should be returned to stettin under the same miserable conditions through which we had just passed but this state of mind had its compensating influence for my tears at the discouraging announcement worked upon the charity of the uniformed officials and in a short time to my inexpressible delight we were permitted to land with a natural alertness to observe anything new in my experience i shall never forget my first impressions of the ocean there seemed no limit to the expanse of stormy waters over which we were traveling and this fact alone added a touch of solemnity to my first venture from home from Istad we proceeded to Copenhagen, where my father had intimate friends, especially in the Lachmann, Eichel, and Rubin families, to whose splendid hospitality and unvarying kindness displayed whenever I visited their neighborhood I wish to testify. We remained at Copenhagen a couple of months, and then proceeded to Gothenburg. It was not at this time my father's intention to burden me with serious responsibility, and, having in mind my age, He gave me but little of the work to do, while he never failed to afford me, when he could, an hour of recreation or pleasure. The trip as a whole, therefore, was rather an educational experiment. In the fall of 1849, we returned to Lobau for the winter. From this time until 1851, we made two trips together, very similar to the one already described, and in 1851, when I was seventeen years of age, I commenced helping in real earnest by degrees i was taught the process of manufacturing and when at intervals a stock had been prepared i made short trips to dispose of it the blacking was a paste put up in small wooden boxes to be applied with a brush such a thing as waterproof blacking then not being thought of at least by us during the summer of eighteen fifty one business carried me to haparanda about the most northerly port in sweden and from there i took passage Stopping at Lule, Pite, Umea, Hernosand, Sundsvall, Soderham, and Geffel, all small places along the route. I transacted no business, however, on the trip up the coast, because it was my intention to return by land, when I should have more time for trade. Accordingly, on my way back to Stockholm, I revisited all these points and succeeded beyond my expectations. On my trip north, I sailed over the Gulf of Bothnia, which the reader will recollect separates sweden from finland a province most unhappily under russia's bigoted despotic sway and while at haparanda i was seized with a desire to visit torne in finland i was well aware that if i attempted to do so by the regular routes on land it would be necessary to pass the russian custom house where officers were sure to examine my passport and knowing as the whole liberal world now more than ever knows that a person of jewish faith finds the merest sally beyond the russian border beset with unreasonable obstacles i decided to walk across the wide marsh in the northern part of the gulf and thus circumvent these exponents of intolerance besides i was curious to learn whether in such a benighted country blacking and ink were used at all i set out therefore through the great moist waste making my way without much difficulty and in due time arrived at tournay when i proceeded immediately to the first store in the neighborhood but there i was destined to experience a rude unexpected setback an old man evidently the proprietor met me and straightway asked are you a jew and seeing or imagining that i saw a delay perhaps not altogether temporary in a russian jail i withdrew from the store without ceremony and returned to the place whence i had come notwithstanding this adventure i reached stockholm in due season the trip back consuming about three weeks and during part of that period i subsisted almost entirely on salmon bears meat milk and knäckebröd, the last a bread usually made of rye flour in which the bran has been preserved all in all i was well pleased with this maiden trip and as it was then september i returned to lobau to spend one more winter at home chapter two westward ho eighteen fifty three in april eighteen fifty three when i had reached the age of nineteen and was expected to take a still more important part in our business an arrangement perfectly agreeable to me my father and i resumed our selling and again left for sweden for the sake of economy as well as to be closer to our field of operations We'd established two insignificant manufacturing plants, the one at Copenhagen, where we packed for two months, the other at Gothenburg, where we also prepared stock, and from these two points we operated until the middle of May, 1853. Then a most important event occurred, completely changing the course of my life. In the spring, a letter was received from my brother, J.P. Newmark, who in 1848 had gone to the United States and had later settled in Los Angeles. He had previously, about 1846, resided in England, as I have said, had then sailed to New York and tarried for a while in the East. When attracted by the discovery of gold, he had proceeded to San Francisco, arriving there on May sixth, eighteen 1851, being the first of our family to come to the coast. In this letter, my brother invited me to join him in California, and from the first I was inclined to make the change, though I realized that much depended on my father, He looked over my shoulder as I read the momentous message, and when I came to the suggestion that I should leave for America, I examined my father's face to anticipate, if possible, his decision. After some reflection, he said he had no doubt that my future would be benefited by such a change, and while reluctant enough to let me go, he decided that as soon as practicable I ought to start. WE CALCULATED THE AMOUNT OF BLACKING LIKELY TO BE REQUIRED FOR OUR TRADE TO THE SEASON'S END, AND THEN DEVOTED THE NECESSARY TIME TO ITS MANUFACTURE. MY MOTHER, WHEN INFORMED OF MY PROPOSED DEPARTURE, WAS BESIDE HERSELF WITH GRIEF, AND FORTHWITH INSISTED ON MY RETURN TO Lobau. BUT BEING CONVINCED THAT SHE INTENDED TO THWART MY DESIRE, AND HAVING IN MIND THE VERY OPTIMISTIC SPIRIT OF MY BROTHER'S LETTER, I YIELDED TO THE INFLUENCE OF AMBITIOUS AND UNREFLECTING YOUTH, and sorrowfully but firmly insisted on the execution of my plans i feared that should i return home to defend my intended course the mutual pain of parting would still be great i also had in mind my sisters and brothers two of whom johanna still alive and nathan deceased subsequently came to los angeles and knew that each would appeal strongly to my affection and regret this resolution to leave without a formal adieu caused me no end of distress and my regret was the greater when on friday july first eighteen fifty three i stood face to face with the actual realization among absolute strangers on the deck of the vessel that was to carry me from gothenburg to hull and far away from home and kindred with deep emotion my father bade me good-bye on the gothenburg pier nor was i less affected at the parting indeed i have never doubted that my father made a great sacrifice when he permitted me to leave him since i must have been of much assistance and considerable comfort especially during his otherwise solitary travels in foreign lands i remember distinctly remaining on deck as long as there was the least vision of him but when distance obliterated all view of the shore i went below to regain my composure i soon installed my belongings in the state-room or cabin as it was then called And began to accustom myself to my new and strange environment there was but one other passenger a young man and he was to have a curious part in my immediate future as he was also bound for hull we entered into conversation and following the usual tendency of people aboard ship we soon became acquaintances i had learned the swedish language and could speak it with comparative ease so that we conversed without difficulty He gave Gothenburg as his place of residence although there was no one at his departure to wish him godspeed and while this impressed me strangely at the time i saw in it no particular reason to be suspicious he stated also that he was bound for new york and as it developed that we intended to take passage on the same boat we were pleased with the prospect of having each other's company throughout the entire voyage soon our relations became more confidential and he finally told me that he was carrying a sum of money and asked me to take charge of a part of it unsophisticated though i was i remembered my father's warning to be careful in transactions with strangers furthermore the idea of burdening myself with another's responsibility seeming injudicious i politely refused his request although even then my suspicions were not aroused it was peculiar to be sure that when we steamed away from land the young man was in his cabin but it was only in the light of later developments that I understood why he so concealed himself. We had now entered the open sea, which was very rough, and I retired, remaining in my bunk for two days or until we approached Hull, suffering from the most terrible seasickness I have ever experienced, and not until we sailed into port did I recover my sea legs at all. Having dressed, I again met my traveling companion, and we became still more intimate, On Sunday morning we reached Hull, then boasting of no such harbor facilities as the great Humber docks now in course of construction, and having transferred our baggage to the train as best we could, we proceeded almost immediately on our way to Liverpool. While now the fast English express crosses the country in about three hours, the trip then consumed the better part of the night, and being made in the darkness afforded but little opportunity for observation hardly had we arrived in liverpool when i was surprised in a way that i shall never forget while attempting to find our bundles as they came from the luggage van a precaution necessitated by the poor baggage system then in vogue which did not provide for checking my companion and i were taken in hand by officers of the law told that we were under arrest and at once conducted to an examining magistrate as my conscience was clear i had no misgivings on account of the detention although I did fear that I might lose my personal effects. Nor was I at ease again, until they were brought in for special inspection. Our trunks were opened in the presence of the Swedish consul, who had come in the meantime upon the scene, and mine having been emptied, it was immediately repacked and closed. What was my amazement, however, when my fellow traveller's trunk was found to contain a very large amount of money, with which he had absconded from Gothenburg? he was at once hurried away to police headquarters. And I then learned that after our departure, messages had been sent to both Hull and Liverpool to stop the thief, but that through confusion in the description, doubtless due to the crude and incomplete information transmitted by telegraph, then by no means as thoroughly developed as now, the Liverpool authorities had arrested the only two passengers arriving there who were known to have embarked at Gothenburg, and I, unfortunately, happened to be one of them. At the period whereof I write, there was a semi-monthly steamer service between Liverpool and New York, and as bad luck would have it, the boat in which I was to travel paddled away while I was in the midst of the predicament just described, leaving me with the unpleasant outlook of having to delay my departure for America two full weeks. The one thing that consoled me was that, not having been fastidious as to my berth, I had not engaged passage in advance, and so was not further embarrassed by the forfeiture of hard-earned and much-needed money. As it was, having stopped at a moderately-priced hotel for the night, I set out the next morning to investigate the situation. Speaking no English, I was fortunate, a few days later, in meeting a Swedish emigration agent who informed me that the Star King, a three-masted sailing vessel in command of Captain Berland, both ship and captain hailing from Baltimore, was booked to leave the following morning, and finding the office of the company, I engaged one of the six first-class berths in the saloon. There was no second-class cabin, or I might have traveled in that class, and of steerage passengers the Star King carried more than eight hundred crowded and seasick souls, most of whom were Irish. Even in the first-class saloon there were few, if any, of the ordinary comforts, as I soon discovered, while of luxuries there were none." and if one had the misfortune to lose even trifling delicacies such as I had, including half a dozen bottles of assorted syrups put up by good Mrs. Lippmann on my leaving Gothenburg and dropped by a bungling porter, the inconvenience of the situation was intensified. We left Liverpool, which, unlike Hull, I have since seen in one of my several visits to Europe. On the evening of the 10th of July on my way to the cabin i passed the dining-table already arranged for supper and as i had eaten very sparingly since my sea-sickness on the way to hull i was fully prepared for a square meal the absence not only of smoke but of any smell as from an engine was also favorable to my appetite and when the proper time arrived i did full justice to what was set before me steamers then were infrequent on the atlantic but there were many sailing vessels and these we often passed, so close, in fact, as to enable the respective captains to converse with each other. In the beginning, we had an ample supply of fresh meat, eggs, and butter, as well as some poultry, and the first week's travel was like a delightful pleasure excursion. After that, however, the meat commenced to deteriorate, the eggs turned stale, and the butter became rancid, and as the days passed, everything grew worse excepting a good supply of cheese, which possessed, as usual, the faculty of improving rather than spoiling as it aged. Mountain water might justly have shown indignation if the contents of the barrels then on board had claimed relationship, while coffee and tea, of which we partook in the usual manner at the commencement of our voyage, we were compelled to drink, after a short time, without milk, the one black and the other green. Notwithstanding these annoyances, I enjoyed the experience immensely, once I had recovered from my depression at leaving Europe, for youth could laugh at such drawbacks, none of which, after all, seriously affected my naturally buoyant spirits. Not until I had narrowly escaped being shot, through the captain's careless handling of a derringer, was I roused from a monotonous and half-dreamy existence. Following this escape... Matters progressed without special incident until we were off the coast of Newfoundland, when we had every reason to expect an early arrival in New York. Late one afternoon, while the vessel was proceeding with all sails set, a furious squall struck her, squarely amidships, and in almost as short a time as it takes to relate the catastrophe, our three masts were snapped asunder, falling over the side of the boat, and all but capsizing her. The utmost excitement prevailed, and from the captain down to the ordinary seaman, all hands were terror-stricken. The captain believed, in fact, that there was no hope of saving his ship, and forgetful of all need of self-control and discipline, he loudly called to us, every man for himself, at the same time actually tearing at and plucking his bushy hair, a performance that in no wise relieved the crisis in less than half an hour the fury of the elements had subsided and we found ourselves becalmed and the crew assisted by the passengers were enabled by cutting away chains ropes and torn sails to steady the ship and keep her afloat after this was accomplished the captain engaged a number of competent steerage passengers to help put up emergency masts and to prepare new sails for which we carried material For twelve weary days we drifted with the current, apparently not advancing a mile, and during all this time the Atlantic, but recently so stormy and raging, was as smooth as a mill-pond, and the wreckage kept close to our ship. It was about the middle of August when this disaster occurred, and not until we had been busy many days rigging up again did a stiff breeze spring up, enabling us to complete our voyage on august twenty eighth eighteen fifty three exactly forty nine days after our departure from liverpool we arrived at new york reaching sandy hook in a fog so dense that it was impossible to see any distance ahead and only when the fog lifted revealing the great harbor and showing how miraculously we had escaped collision with the numerous craft all about us was our joy and relief at reaching port complete i cannot recollect whether we took a pilot aboard or not but I do know that the peculiar circumstances under which we arrived, having prevented a health officer from immediately visiting us, we were obliged to cast anchor and await his inspection the next morning. During the evening, the captain bought fresh meat, vegetables, butter, and eggs offered for sale by vendors in boats coming alongside, and with sharpened appetites we made short work of a fine supper, notwithstanding that various features of shore life or some passing craft, every minute or two challenged our attention, and quite as amply we did justice on the following morning to our last breakfast aboard ship. As I obtained my first glimpse of New York, I thought of the hardships of my father there a few years before, and of his compulsory return to Europe, and I wondered what might have been my position among Americans had he succeeded in New York. At last, on August eighteen 1853, under a blue and inspiriting sky, and with both curiosity and hope tuned to the highest pitch, I first set foot on American soil, in the country where I was to live and labor the remainder of my life, whose flag and institutions I have more and more learned to honor and love. Before leaving Europe, I had been provided with the New York addresses of friends from Lobau, and my first duty was to look them up. One of these named lindauer kept a boarding house on bayard street near the five points now i believe in the neighborhood of chinatown and as i had no desire to frequent high-priced hotels i made my temporary abode with him i also located the house of rich brothers associated with the san francisco concern of the same name and through whom i was to obtain funds from my brother with which to continue my journey But as I had to remain in New York three weeks until their receipt, I could do little more in furthering my departure than to engage second cabin passage via Nicaragua by a line running in opposition to the Panama route and offering cheapness as its principal attraction. Having attended to that, I spent the balance of the time visiting and seeing the city and in making my first commercial venture in the New World in my impatience to be doing something i foolishly relieved samuel a brother of caspare cohn a nephew of mine of a portion of his merchandise but in a single day i decided to abandon peddling a difficult business for which evidently i was never intended after that a painful experience with mosquitoes was my only unpleasant adventure i did not know until later that an excited crowd of men were just then assembled in the neighborhood in what was styled the Universal Ice Water Convention, and that not far away a crowd of women quite as demonstrative, excluded from the councils of men, and led by no less a personality than P. T. Barnum, the showman, were clamoring for both prohibition and equal suffrage. End of section one.